Hello ladies and gentlemen and welcome to series 2 episode 3 of George Ezra and Friends the podcast. My guest this week uh, was an absolute gentleman. He invited me into his family home and he fed me and he made me feel very welcome indeed. It is of course Laurie Vincent, one half of the band Slaves here in the UK. Um, who, when we sat down, they were at the dawn, it was the dawn of the release of their third studio album, Acts of Fear and Love. All three of those studio albums have been top 10 albums here in the UK, which is just incredible and so deserved. Uh, yeah, well done boys. And it was just amazing to sit down and talk about everything that has led the band to where they are today and uh, everything that they would love to play around with in the future. I should say, of course, in the half-time break, the interval, we will hear a word from our partners over at Mind Charity. Uh, if you are listening outside of the UK, you might just hear an advert. Um, I'm not sure, as always, I don't know how this is going to roll out. Um, and if you are listening to this week's episode with kids in the room, are you in the car? Are you pottering around the house with this episode on? If so, there might be one or two swear words. I'm just saying, because, you know, it's nice to give you a heads up. There might be. Anyway, without further ado, please sit back and enjoy this conversation with Laurie Vincent. Thank you for having me over, man. I appreciate you a lot. Mate, thank you it's for nice coming. To do. I'm glad, I like the fact you've come to my house. I like, I like showing people where I live and what, who I am. It's not, it's a rare thing that you get to do in this line of work. I know, I love it. When, if, if someone on the off chance is going to pop round, I get a bit, it's not house proud, but it's kind of like, ah, oh, maybe I'll make a bit more sense to them when yeah. they see like, your where things I live. Yeah. and your, where you are. And then you can always paint a mental image of me now. Whenever you think... Whenever I think of Laurie, I'll picture yeah. you in your, Sat in your nest. <laughs> um, so, you've, you've listened to one or two of the episodes? Yeah, specifically, I've uh, listened to the... I've listened to a lot, actually. The Elton John episode, the Liliana Allen episode. Elton was so cool, man. Well, now, because our album's coming out next week, I'm wondering if he'll choose to get it off his list of new releases because yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I was in disbelief that he did that yeah I remember a few years ago he, he was came out as a big fan of the fat white family yeah so uh, he's into his like m punk music basically yeah, yeah. but then, uh, you know just for my sake and people listening because there'll be a group of people listening that know all about you and know more than what we're going to cover today, yeah. I imagine. But then there'll also be people that are either new to you or know your music and not where everything came from. Yeah. And I think it's just nice. Personally, I just enjoy doing it, like starting from the beginning. Yeah. I don't, like, I'm sure it's well-trodden ground. You know, you've done it once or twice, kind of <laughs> told the story of how it all started. But I think even outside of you and Isaac meeting and starting Slaves, so, you know... You didn't grow up in the same town, I just learned. And no. you must have been finding music for yourself before that, even. So when did that start? Yeah, I try and think about this a lot because you get asked in interviews a lot what was your first musical memory or quickfire questions. And all I can remember is always wanting to play guitar. I've got this, I've got this image of, I must have, I can't remember how old I was. It could have been as early as six, getting a... Uh, Stratocaster Squire start pack 
and it was on a stand in the living room and I got it for my birthday which is the 28th of December so it's right next to Christmas plugging it into the amp and just being so overwhelmed that I don't know how to play it and I'd been really into I think my introduction to music must have been the music channels so like MTV 2 at the time but I was much more Kerrang and mm -hmm. then Scuzz came along and I remember watching I loved watching the Guns N' Roses videos the big guitar solos so that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to solo. I remember this guitar in a room showing some family friends that had just come around how cool it was and none of them being interested in it and just turning it on and just hitting the strings. Where was you said you were like six at this point? I reckon I would could have been between the ages of six and eight. And you had shown an interest in wanting... It wasn't random that the guitar turned up in the living room. No, you'd yeah, shown an interest. I'd already had in year... It was it was infant school, so it would would have been year. I was having acoustic classical lessons in maybe year two or three. I really vividly remember maybe year f no. I started in year three, um, and I just hated it. I was like, why am I learning to play Happy Birthday? I want to play Sweet Child of Mine. But maybe I was <laughs> he wasn't used to that. Um, so yeah, I'd always been obsessed with playing rock music. So then I got to that electric guitar stage and I'd tick something off. But we didn't have YouTube. I know that sounds yeah, mad, yeah, yeah. but we couldn't... It was harder to teach yourself than people maybe realised to pick up a few chords. Because now you could just Google it and it's all there to be seen. It's so worth pointing out. I've not really bothered mentioning that before, but now everything's a bit easier. Like I even find it when I'm doing, I don't know, cooking or DIY. I literally go on YouTube, like, how do I do this? Yeah. And there's some... But he's somewhere who's made the video. It's the talking through that helps because people will say, oh, there were like tab books or there was. But I used to play, you know, um, Never. Um, can't, oh, sorry, Smells Like a Teen Spirit by Nirvana. I used to actually palm mute that bit because no one had explained to me that if you like hold the strings with your left hand, it makes the same noise as if you palm mute. Yeah. So I used to think that that chord. Oh, so you would hold the chord down go, still and palm mute. Dun, dun, dun. And I was oh, okay. like, that's so hard because you have to like take your hand off and then bridge it again because no, you well, just need someone to point those things out yeah. to you and that having Bart my son and showing him instruments you realise that the first lesson you have on a guitar is how to hold it and even that is confusing some people don't realise which way which way up <laughs> it goes and then yeah so having I needed guitar teachers basically to point me in the right direction and then I went through a string of about I must have had six or seven just couldn't get on with them because mm. I had one guy who was probably really great but I told him I wanted to be like Slash and he literally tried to start at scales <laughs> so I just he was going dun 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 and then he'd go I'd do it but I didn't I couldn't work out why I was doing yeah, it yeah 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 till eventually I had this amazing guitar teacher called Chris Waters and first lesson he sat me down and by the time he left I was playing Wonderwall and it was like the it was just I'm getting a surge of emotion just thinking about that yeah. feeling of just sitting there playing Wonderwall. Uh, I actually, repeat. I told Noel Gallagher that recently. I just let I let my call go, and I was yeah. like, the first song that I ever learned was Wonderwall, and he was like, he actually looked like genuinely pleased about it as well. <laughs> Amazing, but that's it. I think if you're trying to introduce people to music, it like it doesn't even have to be technically bang on. Show them how to play the song they want to play instead mm. of like, oh, well, you start here, then get to that bit. Even if, say, that's a G chord, I don't know, 
Yeah, exactly. Uh, but they don't even know to need to know they're playing a G chord. It's just like, this is where you put your fingers, and that's the start chord. And then they can hear that. Because even for me, learning those simple chords was never satisfying until there was a product. I guess maybe I always wanted to write songs, and that's where it starts at. Mm -hmm. But just playing like an A and a G, I, it didn't, I didn't get that satisfaction until I finally heard something that I recognised. Mm. And then, yeah, I never... From there, I went on to have drum lessons and... So, la, about two weeks ago, I inter interviewed Niall Rogers. Yeah. And he said the exact same thing. He said, like, he was playing the guitar, and it was when he first... The first time he heard it, and it sounded like what he was meant for it to sound like. Yeah. He'll never forget that moment. I, I was in... I was, I, I can even remember the house number, 58 Roseacre Lane in Bearstead, in the basement, on a pull-out bed on this acoustic guitar one of those sofa beds it was made into a sofa just sat there and then just like as soon as the guitar teacher left running back downstairs doing it again for again, ages yeah. yeah did you have this thing I had this thing when I first started to learn guitar it was just chords and I had it in my head that the faster you played the better <laughs> so I would like sing knocking on heaven's door and blowing in the wind but like how many roads was I felt like yeah, I was really fast. quick did you ever do that I don't, I don't know. I don't think I ever, I, it's, I never really got the confidence up to sing as well. Mm. So I never, I, as, as soon as I could get my, to grips with it, I was trying to work out like the solos to things, mm -hmm. but I always lost patience to do the whole song. Mm. I'd learn bits, like I could play the intro to something and, uh, I got obsessive about the intro to Under the Bridge by Red Hot Chili Peppers and playing that fast is just impossible. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> So then you said how, you know, you showed your family, friends or your cousins, I can't remember what you said, the, the guitar and they weren't that interested. Does that like narrative follow you through your, were there friends of yours at school that were interested by this point? At some point, did you start making bands at school and yeah, like-minded um, friends and stuff? I would, I, I remember having, I was in a, a rugby team and I worked out that one of the kids could play drums and one could play bass and I'd get them around to start a band and I could just instantly tell that they weren't as into it as me like or they maybe they weren't they didn't want to play the same sort of music as me or what or they weren't even they just it was a bit of a laugh yeah. and instantly I couldn't play music with them yeah. I've always had this it's like all or nothing to the point of I was about I was driving so I must have been 17 and I, I was in this, I'd just started driving and I'd been in this band for about three or four years, like all my teenage life, this band. And I like, was saying to them, like, if we keep working, we'll, like, we'll do this. And they were all talking about going to university. And when they mentioned they were going to university, I just quit the band. Mm. I just said, I'm not doing that. I'm going to do this. At that point in your mind, it's pointless. It's yeah. futile. I was like, you, you've chosen that you're not going to fully commit. I can't be in a band with you. And they were like two of my best friends, Manny and Mike. And uh, they're both... Brilliant. I still think Manny's one of my favourite drummers ever. Mm. And uh, it's been so weird for me because, like, I haven't shared my journey with them. So, like, he was obsessed with Jack Bevan from Foles and then I get to watch Foles yeah, side stage yeah, and yeah. play shows with them. And I'm like, oh, I wish Manny could see this. Yeah. And Mike's bass lines were, like, incredible. And it was, like, a really fun little band, but we just, you know, not everyone can be that driven. But it's testimony to you the fact that at such a young age you'd worked that out because it, I remember having a similar thing where I was in a band and people went off to uni and stuff and I just realised 
do it solo, George. Mm. It's you don't have to. There's no opinions on what songs you play live. You can rehearse whenever. You, you know that was my way round it. It was kind of like, in fact, if I just rely on myself, yeah, there's no disappointment. Yeah, um, I think I recognised. I didn't like necessarily know it instantly, or I didn't have it like I couldn't. I didn't say this, but I think I subconsciously realised my talent lied in guitar melody mm -hmm. and writing guitar parts and although I could do lyrics and I could sing to an extent it was holding the band it would hold the music back a little bit so from then I joined another band and I ended up being the bass player and they were signed to a tiny label and I thought I'd made it I sold a really beautiful guitar that I got for my 16th birthday um, to buy a bass amp and a bass and just threw myself at it but all the while of this story, Isaac's been in the back of my mind because he was in my favourite local band. So you'd already met Isaac when yeah, you were in other bands. bands. Okay. And he's so he's a year older than me in school years, which is massive. When you're I 16... Sorry, just quickly. I was saying this to my sister the other day. Isn't it <laughs> mad how we're like... Some of us are, you know, we're in our 20s, 30s, and we still refer to people as either the year above or the year below. Well, like, you're you're the same. Like, my girlfriend, like, I would have probably been in year seven when she would have been a sixth former, and I'm still patting myself on the back for it. <laughs> <laughs> as pathetic as that is. Yeah, yeah. So you were aware of Isaac? Yeah, so Isaac was the first person... Just quickly, sorry, before we get onto that bit... So in your early adolescent years and you're playing and everything, yeah, was it was music ever an escape for you or an antidote to things going on around you, or was it just something you didn't question, you just loved, and that was it? I think it, I think it was both. I like I'm pretty open about it in interviews. I really dislike school. I could just never ever get my head round mm -hmm. like why do we need to do biology? Why do I need to know Pythagoras' theorem in maths? And I never, I didn't, re I like changed around schools a lot. I really didn't, I wasn't, I wasn't a geek. I wasn't, a, I wasn't like a footballer. Mm. I wasn't, I wasn't anything. I was like a really, I wasn't even a music kid. There were people who were musos that could shred and hung out in the music room, but I hated the music teachers too. So I was just really like floating. Did mm -hmm. I could, I, was, I had friends and stuff, but I just didn't know what I wanted to do. So music was always the thing that was consistent. And then... I think I always knew I didn't want a proper job. I just, I, I, from a really young age, I could just see how boring and monotonous life seemed to be for everyone. Um, I can't actually work out why, why I felt like that, but uh, yeah, going to my bedroom in the evenings and I was really fortunate that my parents like supported me so much. They might not be, music buffs and they didn't introduce me into to any like revolutionary music mm. I had to do that myself but I, I wanted guitar lessons so they got me guitar lessons I wanted drum lessons so they got me drum lessons mm. and they formed my ability by supporting me taking me to drum lessons every week letting me play drums in the house which is I, I had a conversation with my mum the other day where she said there were so many times where she would be walking upstairs to tell me to shut up and as she got to the door I would just stop like she never actually did it, but apparently, like I, like weird six. Yeah, sense. yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, it was an escape. And then as I got, this is later in the story. The story sort of crosses over at that sort of driving age. So when I quit that band and I went into this other band, my dad was like really ill. 
he sort of suffered a stroke which was like a lot of people think of strokes as something that um, affects like their grandparents and then they mm. get over it and they're fine in a couple of weeks after a bit of rehab. But he had a major stroke, which basically, which I don't talk about very often because I sort of don't want to be known. Yeah. I don't want people, I don't ever really want to, I don't really want people's pity because it actually, f it formed me why I'm so neurotically driven. Him being ill made me, gave me this window to completely go, right, I'm not doing sixth form, I'm quitting, I'm going to art school. And to my mum's dismay, because I get it, like now being a parent, you want the best for your kids. And seemingly the best thing for kids to do is go to university. But I just knew it wasn't for me. So as soon as my dad had this stroke, which basically affected, um, he had a bleed over 50% of his brain and left him paralyzed and disabled for the rest of his life, um, had to, stop working and he is sort of confined to like a wheelchair or a sofa and he can't um, he can't work and that made me really angry and a lot of things that went uh, went around the time of him having a stroke when you realize how like backward society is like he was quite a high another ironic part of my band and stuff like he was a, he was like in the city doing a city job and he was high in his city job I'm not going to what he did or anything but you know he did well for himself coming from like like working class beginnings his dad was a plasterer and he was just like he would drop his mum to work in Waitrose and he'd take his dad to his job and he'd go to school in the morning so he was my dad like I'm really proud of him and his hard work ethic has inspired me but then to see someone so high flying get cut down at his prime in his 40s and then like the NHS like the, basically the council like everyone that's dis disabled has to be reassessed to see if they can work and he was deemed fit for fit for work and we were like what what would he do and all of that stuff and then when that's all going on around you and that's happening to your family I was just I think that allowed me to just go come quite ta go get tattooed go hang out where i wanted to like rebel basically yeah. and i love punk music anyway but i definitely think that sent me even more down that way because i was in an indie band and i think you have that feeling when you're growing up like i should write melodies and i'd watch hardcore bands because it was a massive hardcore scene in kent and i loved it but i knew it wasn't going to make a career and then when all that stuff happened with my dad i was like I just want to play whatever I want. Yeah, and when, so when you're set, like, you find refuge in punk music, which makes complete sense. I think even, I think if you're somebody that's liable to kind of find music, it's an escape no matter what. But yeah. especially if something like that is going on in your life that's so huge, yeah. it's, it's definitely going to act as an escape of some sort. Were, were you kind of against... Was you listening to punk in any way a reaction to not listening to mainstream music at the time? Were you against anything, any particular scene? Hmm. No, I wasn't. I think I was against people finding out that I listened to everything because mm -hmm. I think small towns, you have to align with a with a, with a group. You have that people want to be able to pigeonhole you, and it's sort of easier if you let them. That's what I was getting at. Is that especially teenagers? It's like. I'm gonna have this hair and wear these jeans because yeah. I'm this, you know. But like, I was always, I was, all, I always fell short. I wanted to be the emo guy, but my hair never got quite long enough. 
or I wanted that sounds like a really good film yeah like, the emo that never was <laughs> yeah exactly or I wanted to be a punk but I was only I was only 12 and my parents wouldn't buy me DMs so I had Converse instead and then I'm like I wanted to be a goth but really I knew it wasn't me and I was too embarrassed to walk down the street in the clothes and so. to the point where yeah <laughs> to the point where if I'm brutally honest this year of my life I feel like I've finally just been comfortable with who I am my hair's the way I like it yeah. I, I think it's quite men aren't we're not told to talk about stuff like this and especially in our industry you're not supposed to like give away a lot but I'm, I wear my heart on my sleeve and it's like I finally can have that. I finally got that slick back haircut that I always wanted. I just wish someone told me you just have to leave your hair to grow longer. Yeah. All that. Do stuff. you think that's partly having had your son? Your kind of things are becoming what was the word perspective where you can go like oh, actually this is fine I can do this I can do that yeah like when we dress him in his clothes and you realise that he can wear whatever he wants and my girlfriend's got an amazing sense of style and she applies it to bar I, I chip him with a few items but it really is her and just seeing how that it's really hard to shake that small town feeling that you have to be one thing so with even with our band we've got an image and like Sometimes I feel like, oh, I can't wear that because if I bumped into someone, I'm not in slaves mode. And I even say that sometimes, slaves mode versus lorry. And like, I've got loads of clothes I like, but because of the image we give across. And it's something that you realise the older you get, it's irrelevant. Mm. It's actually who you are. And if you're wearing DMs or a pair of Nike Air Max, no one's going to notice. <laughs> I think it's that thing, is, that's it. If you said to your, like, even your closest friends, do you remember what I was wearing last time we were together? They'd be like, um... Yeah, <laughs> people don't. You don't like really. You might notice at the time, but it's it's not going to take up any part of your no. brain capacity to you know log everything that people do, say, and wear. You know exactly. And I always loved. There were a few bands I loved growing up. Locally, there was a band called Underground Heroes, and they went on tour with like the Metros, and like I think they got like a support gig for the Enemy and stuff like that. They were like almost doing it. And they called themselves Chav Punk. So they'd wear like leather jackets, but wear Air Max. And they were from Chatham. So they'd wear like Burberry. And then they'd wear like skinny jeans. And I was like, this is, this is, that's sick. I love yeah, that. Yeah. And that's always stuck with me. And then when Gallows came about later and they were like Air Max and hardcore, I was like, that's sick as well. So I've always loved things that slightly twist. And yeah, that goes on to realizing that what we, what you were saying earlier about your um, teacher who told you don't make music that's out in the charts now. It's the same with style and image. It's, it's the, the core of my band is why I think we did well, because mm. there's no one that has our fundamental setup. Mm. So before you even make any music, you've got an element of originality. Yeah, yeah. And there's, there's people that sometimes maybe say the music's just taken from influences of other places and it's not original but I always know even if you think that the way we play it's original yeah, yeah. so you've but we'll get to that because that's not a fair point at all is it no. just quick, quickly Frank Carter Gallows I remember that being like because I used to read the enemy religiously and he would be in it regularly and on paper looking at him he was someone that intimidated me but then he spoke so openly and was like heartfelt about things it was yeah. at odds at what I expected him to be and I remember learning that lesson of like and actually there's more love in communities in hardcore bands I think than there is in many other genres definitely and I, I remember learning that so early on and it was just a brilliant lesson to learn yeah you know, the way someone looks and the way they actually, what they say and how they act. 
it's interesting like the more you get into music that's heavy the more actually sensitive it is it's almost like a front i think a lot of the stuff i was into growing up gave me this ability to be to like sort of push away all the people that were going to judge you so so people that judge you if they hear you shouting and screaming on the radio or then they look at you and you're dressed a certain way they're not going to even bother with you mm. and it allows you to like sort of skim off a layer of sort of people shallow people yeah exactly that's such a good point and so I think subconsciously my tattoos and stuff reflect that as well I just sort of people that avoid me probably I don't want to talk to them anyway <laughs> yeah, yeah that's a fair point because I think we're all guilty to, of it to an extent though of like making judgments before we've met people and I don't even think we do it consciously I think it's just something that, that is whirling away I don't know if it's a kind of safety mechanism yeah, it must what. be just like okay yeah I don't I'm know. in danger yeah like your like instincts animalistic yeah so then we were just getting to the bit where Isaac comes along in the story right so this blew my mind and I have to take everyone still back to like the first days of broadband like when some people still had dial up it was like the crossover do you remember the noise dial up made yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and your parents shouting up 10 minutes yeah and do you remember when there was like a big storm it wouldn't work yeah <laughs> I, I the internet just wasn't the, what it was now like I remember we used to own the only website we could access me and my sister was like a kids own thing mm. so you were on the internet and you could do games and stuff and your games like I won a game once and then I got sent a free winner's package in the off post, the internet off the internet like it was a my dad had essentially got like a kid friendly yeah, yeah. like safari or whatever or windows Explorer, i love the idea that it was just him posting you a gift yeah there probably was <laughs> my sister didn't get one <laughs> um so yeah we're, we're at that point of the internet it's it's like iphones haven't come out or anything or or no they haven't i don't think maybe the first one it still was really ropey and um Isaac was the first person that I was aware of in our county that was putting music online. Actually, like, and I was like, how do you, before, before we all had GarageBand, before like Mac was as big, and you'd go on YouTube and he would have like videos and videos to go with his music online. And I just remember it blowing my mind. I was like, how has he done that? And to me, he was a pop star. Like to mm. me, he was, and then I went to another gig and I spotted him at that gig because I used to go over to Tunbridge Wells Forum as soon as I could drive. Before I could drive, my parents used to take me and drop me there. So how long is the forum from where you grew up? How long a journey is like, that? At least, like, probably, like, on a good day, like, 50 minutes, but an hour at least. Right. So, like, in other people's context, that's a different place. Yeah, yeah, but it's yeah, still yeah. in Kent. Kent's massive. Yeah. Um, so yeah and I spotted him at a gig and he got on stage with another band and started rapping and it's really interesting this scene of bands that was around in Tunbridge Wells that were older than me were all really good musicians and lots of them have gone on to do other things so like the drummer in that band that Isaac rapped with is now the singer in Ladybird that we just signed the band we just signed and like all sorts of things there was this like Tunbridge Wells had this incredible pool of musicians that made you feel like you are not good enough. They were all so far ahead of where we were. But is that not also part of your... 
like, they might have just been older than you or because yeah. they actually were just getting up and doing it yeah, and suddenly exactly. it looks like it's bigger than it is you know yeah and but they were writing good songs like, I can still remember the songs yeah. and Isaac was sort of solo and then he joined a band called Bareface who became my favourite band because there was this really brief I don't know if you remember it like after emo you had like scene kids mm-hmm. and the music that accompanied it like Hadouken mm-hmm. and that sort of synth so test icicles that and girl is an indie synth that, yeah, yeah, yeah I made my own Hadouken t-shirt you know that yeah, H yeah. thing anyway so Isaac's band like for me took the good bits of that scene and the good bits of like bands like Gallows and crossed it over so they had a synth but it was also really heavy and I remember watching his EP launch and I just wanted to quit music because he was in the band I wanted to be in. I'd never had that feeling before. I'd seen other bands that were good, Mm -hmm. but I'd never seen a band who were just doing exactly what I wanted to do. It was heavy, it had hooks, had choruses. So I don't know, I can't remember exactly how it happened. Right, no, I do. I got the the next stage in the story. So after that launch, we then play a gig with them. I was in this like little punk band that I'd set up as a side project from this band I was playing bass in and we supported his band um, and I looked when you when you when you play gigs I don't know if you are I'm always aware of everyone in the room I can play Reading and Leeds and spot someone in like the audience Mate, we played the pyramid stage. I hadn't even said hello yet. I'd seen my ex-girlfriend. There was eighty thousand people there, and I saw my. And I was just like, "How does that happen?" And why is she watching you? Oh come on! I mean, <laughs> curiosity. <laughs> no, we we were still tight. Oh, okay. it, it kind of wasn't as like harrowing as it could have been, but I was just like, "Oh, for fuck's sake!" But yeah, I know exactly what you mean. When you walk by the end of a gig, I can kind of like picture the audience exactly from memory. Yeah. Uh, Isaac can't, which is another interesting thing, because if he's drumming, he is mm-hmm. locked in a spot, and he's if you watch him, he actually is usually looking up or I've something. I've noticed that. Yeah, he sings like up, and I don't actually... Th- you know that thing you can do where you're not looking? I think he's not looking at anything. He's actually concentrating so hard. Yeah. So I do this thing where I just constantly scan the audience, but back then there was probably only 10 people in the room, but fixed in my gaze was Isaac watching me, and I was just like, oh my God, my favourite band lead singers watching me I can't believe it and he watched the whole set and I just he was into it and that from that gave me this huge confidence and afterwards I was just like uh, I was like oh like went up and chatted to him and found out he was into punk music and that he was really because he you sort of he comes more from a hip-hop background mm-hmm. I definitely say I I grew up hanging around with more like grunger kids and he grew up hanging around with the more chavvy kids in a nice way mm. um so then there was a third gig after that where I went and saw Bareface and then we got to talking and I just said, I, sh- I think I probably had a few drinks at this point, I was just like, if you ever need a, a bassist or a musician, just give me a shout. And I'm, it was just fate. The next day I got a text from him and he just, uh, he invited me to a pub after I'd said that and I was like, wow. And then we went and like, had a drink because he was still famous to me, even in this small town mindset. Yeah. He was like the coolest kid in Kent to me. Um, and then I got a text the next day, I was doing a tattoo apprenticeship, or no, it was before I started my tattoo apprenticeship, I was hang- I just hang out at this tattoo shop where my best friend worked, and I was being tattooed, and I got this text saying, we're actually getting rid of our bases, do you want to join this band? And I was like, I've, I've made it. Yeah, yeah. Like, the band I was previously seeing had just like ground to a halt, I was like free. So I was like, 
was on a holiday with an ex-girlfriend like the week after talking to him about the first band practice and he was like you need because they were a bit simply they're like you need this bass pedal you need this so i was like spending all my money like buying the same equipment first band practice and it's just like wasn't happening you can't that band i love that band because it was that band add any new elements in and it's not the same band but that's a really good lesson to learn early on as well. Yeah. Just kind of like, you can't just sling someone in a situation and it work. No, yeah. But what did happen is that anything that was progressing in the band was me and Isaac. And I could tell he hated the band, but we had an instant chemistry. There was like three or four songs that got half hashed together after I joined and me and him led the way on all of them. Um, and then he i could tell he wasn't happy and i was we were clinging on to the band and then we did one one show and then they all got the original lineup back together to record the previous songs and i was like this is this is bullshit man i was like you can't just go and get the old lineup and i was like what's going on and then he just went i'm quitting and at that same point interestingly out of the five five members of the band like three of them all text him saying you want to start a band not each other <laughs> and he picked me and that's then history was made. And I was chuffed because I was like, I'm the new guy, but he obviously, and this is another thing I've said a few times, but surprisingly growing up where I was from, punk wasn't, people weren't that into it. There was like hardcore and there were kids that were like metal kids. And you had like kids that were into rap and R&B and stuff. And then you sort of had the indie kids, but punk just wasn't that represented. There wasn't but current bands. So no, you, were, you, you were finding old bands, you were listening to like, even just bands like Joy Division or Crass or Clash, or if you like American and stuff like Green Day and Rancid, but it just wasn't popular. No, you're right. I even, I'm thinking back to the kids where I grew up, there wasn't just punks. That wasn't mm. really a thing. And so we met and we just discussed punk music and it was clear that we'd found each other. Just, just, uh, uh, do you ever like have it where you're on stage today where you look over and you go like, shit, that's Isaac from the band that I love. <laughs> do you ever get that? I have those moments in the studio when like his like lyrical brilliance chimes in because the, there isn't a single singer I've ever met that can project harder than he can. Right. We used to play, you know you play tiny venues when you start and oh, can we get some more of the vocal? And it's going, yeah. he's, he would have to turn him down. <laughs> All the other bands can't hear themselves and he's screaming over these PAs and he's just got this, because he sings so in his comfortable range, he can project he, and he just knows where he, he's always, he's got such an awareness of what his voice can do. Does his voice ever tire out on tour? Yeah, so if we start a long tour, First show, he gets overexcited. Third yeah. show, it starts to go. Fourth show, it's stronger than ever. Right. And it happens less and less, but it does happen. And I'm the, like, practical, more sensible one that would like him to do warm-ups and stuff, and he just won't. He for He's actually kind of relates what to you, what you said. You're, like, earlier about music is for fun. It's not... I'm not a professional musician, technically. I'm... I'm we're almost like, we've been allowed to do this. But there's that thing as well, I don't know if you feel this, I really don't see there being a difference between me and another kid that's still playing local pubs. The only difference is that I've been given opportunities, but the ability and everything is the yeah. same. There's no... So there's luck on my side, but there's... 
I'm still that kid in the back of pubs in my mind. Yeah. You know, that's what I'm doing. That's how I feel as well. Like when we go and play small venues and people are like, why are you doing this? You're like, well, why wouldn't we do this? Mm. This is what we've always done. And so he would, Isaac would never do those vocal warm-ups and stuff because that's not fun and he's in this band to have fun. And it's quite, it's quite like, it's, our band is just, it's quite sweet in that way. It's just like, we do it for this reason. Something I really wanted to touch on actually was when I was a teenager, I completely fell in love with Jackass. And yeah. I would watch it. And obviously there's the, the initial thing of it's like the freak show and that's funny. But I used to be so like attracted to them as friends. And I could see, I was so, to me it was so obvious how much they loved each other. Like gang mentality. Yeah, and I, like that really made me feel like, I don't know, it used to make me feel so happy. And But I see that with you and Isaac. To be a fan of Slaves, I think, is to be a part of this friendship, yeah. is how it looks. And it doesn't feel, it feels as natural as that. It looks like two friends. Do you know what I feel? I don't actually 100% get that, oh, I'm in a band with Isaac, My what you said earlier. Mm. But what I do get is this feeling of, I'm so lucky that I'm one of us two. There's only two of us. And that feeling of watching Jackass and the friendship and almost the envy, not necessarily that you want to be in it, but you want your own version of it. Mm -hmm. Nobody can be in my and Isaac's group. We're, it's so small and unique. And... I don't think I ever wanted to be a solo musician. But then saying that, how do you then tackle the subject of inviting even producers into the mix? Or yeah, go, that's where it starts to get really yeah. interesting. <laughs> Does it? Does it? Yeah. Do, yeah. I, I genuinely, hands down, our first two albums were like almost not, we didn't let the producers produce us. Okay. It was just... Do you count Are You Satisfied as your first album? Yeah, so... Sugarcoat, a big bit of truth is an EP. Cool. It's twenty-one minutes long or something. Oh, so it's EP by definition, like it. Yeah, like I think it actually is. Okay. And the way it was recorded and the way it was released, it was never called an album. So okay. when we released it, we called it an EP. Right. Girl fights on there, which is um, fifteen seconds long. Um, I think it's an epidemic. Is one minute ten. So loads of people are like, oh, why did you ignore your first album? And it's like, you can't, you must have learned this as well, you can't lower into the argument because there's just no point. Don't just leave it. But we do recognise that and we love that EP. We did a, we did a celebration of it. We, it's like one of our favourite things we've done. But the way it was recorded, to me an album is a conscious project. That was record the seven songs, that, the nine songs that we have written up until this point and put them on a piece of whatever plastic to sell to people it wasn't let's create an album yeah. so it just it's, it's an EP Are You Satisfied was we got signed we did our I was telling you earlier we did the I watched this Cribs documentary when I was younger and it basically said there's this really good bit where Ryan Jarman's saying like the two years bands need to do the two years they need to go and play those shitty venues they need to go and learn what it means to set your own gear up they need to meet people and have respect for the industry and then after two years after you've honed your craft ascend or whatever mm -hmm. um, and we did that almost almost to the like date like a couple of months after we'd been together two years we got mm -hmm. signed I mean we played our first gig a month after we started the band and it's always been full on the period of getting to you were talking about the albums and the producers right yeah yeah so then when we got to 
being signed, all of a sudden someone says to you, we're going to go work with these people. And you're like, what? And loads of managements have different styles, but the manager at the time wanted us to demo with eight people. He wanted to really, he wanted to, I get the logic in a sense, but it was a bit naive. And so we'd done demos with a guy called Fraser T. Smith, who ended up doing the Stormzy record. And it was great, but it probably, it couldn't have been our first album because it sounded too polished. Right. And for anyone, I'm fairly sure Fraser T. Smith was Craig David's touring guitarist. He was. Right, there you go. And he's an absolutely lovely bloke and we still stay in touch. And then we're going, we're going around all these producers and we're about, we did a session with Roddy Thomas, who did the XX's album, which basically it felt like we were being thrown at really good producers, but no one was actually thinking what's good for the band. Okay, so you were kind of being introduced to producers of the moment. Okay, they've just done this, yeah. they're hot, let's go in a room with them. And Roddy was also a lovely person, but his talent or his like, recent, like he did King Crawl and stuff like that but we're a very different thing from that sort of XL sound and you, it's much, and it just, it, was, it wasn't working and we were frustrated because I was, I was super excited to sit and talk to him about the XX and King Crawl, but that wasn't helping our record. And I think there was this moment of dismay and with every great thing that's happened to our band, it's been self-led. It's been me and Isaac just going, we're gonna tell you what we want. Mm -hmm. And we had done a session like for this, these people called Youth Hymns. We were on our first ever tiny tour. It was in between. We were about to play the Guildford Boiler Room. We played there and the day before they wanted to do this, or on the day of the gig, they wanted to do this live session and we turned up really apprehensive in like some countryside and there's an host house. And they set up to film us and it was a live version of our song called Beauty Quest. And this guy, geeky guy with some glasses and long hair who's just like made us all cheese salad sandwiches and we hit it off straight away talking about how he'd grated the cheddar cheese instead of cutting in slices and how much of a difference that had made and he's miking up the drums and there's a JCM 900 with like a 412 and he's running the snare mic through the Marshall and then miking the Marshall and it was like the sound was I was like what are you doing there what's that and then he was like, I'm recording your sound for this session. I was like, oh, cool. And we get this mix back from the video and it's, it was the best recording we'd ever had. So then we're getting thrown around to all these producers and I just had this moment. I was like, that guy that we met a few months ago. The cheese ago, sandwich guy. The cheese sandwich guy, he needs to produce us. And he'd mentioned that he'd worked on, do you know that band Scum? Yeah. He did Scum, some Scum stuff. He, he worked on The Daughter first yeah. record he's not officially credited i don't think but he was his dad was him and him and his dad was ken thomas who did Seager ross so i basically say to our a and r manager we let and they were very skeptical you know because he didn't have like a big official release under yeah. his belt or anything but i don't know if you've had this but usually the best ideas do are self-generated but it's not just that my argument in that situation is always but if not me, then who? You're saying he's not had his break yet, or she hasn't done this yet, but I could be the person to give them that thing. Not not in a like high and mighty way, but yeah. we could do that. We, like, And that's what's... You can't underestimate someone's um, like thirst for the first breakthrough mm. and working with someone for the first time. I mean, he, he might not like us saying that because he definitely had done stuff before, but there was something special about it. It was like 
it felt like we were special at the time. We'd sort of given ourselves this confidence, like our old demos were getting played on Radio One, like there was a rush, like they were playing like Where's Your Car Debbie and Hey, like these, no, Where's Your Car Debbie and something else, Beauty Quest. We'd, we were slipping into the mainstream's eye and it was like, we need to record music. Mm -hmm. So we got sent down to his, to his studio in his parents' house to do a demo um, to record Hey came out and it was just like, I remember everyone just sitting there in the van going, that's it, it's him, it's him, it's the best it's ever sounded. And is that pretty much what we hear today, that hey? Yeah, hey, and the whole, and then we did another session and we did um, The Hunter and Cheer Up London. So yeah, we, we did our first record with him, but we'd also got into this jokey relationship where we just said no. Everything he said, we said no. He was like, try this, no. And he did, he slipped a lot of good stuff into Are You Satisfied? Like almost without us realizing, like there are a lot of great ideas there, but we weren't f mature enough and ready enough to embrace it. Like, so like welcome in a third. I didn't understand why you needed to try out different guitars mm. and the whole of Are You Satisfied was probably recorded on my Squire Supersonic. I didn't really get why you'd want to like record in sections and change the amps because to me that wasn't authentic Would and we you were record lying. to a click track? We record to a click track to get the drums, yes. to get the guide track, and then with both records we've found that essentially that guide track does the drums, and then we like just the floor and snare, and then Isaac will do the cymbals separately, then I'll do the guitars. Um, on this record we actually would do a, a guide then Isaac would go and do the drums, then he would do the cymbals, and then I'd do it, and it built up like mm -hmm. that. But also on this record, we would cut and paste stuff. We were much yes. more experimental. What on this, the one that's like going The to song out. Cut and Run, for example. Oh, okay. That was just literally a studio experiment where the, the structure of the song got formed in a Pro Tools session and not in real life. Okay. So we weren't, that song was like sections that we were playing, and then we went looked at it on a screen Try moving that bit there. Try yeah, moving yeah. that bit there. But that's a brilliant practice as well. I think there's like some people are too in that world and they're stuck at the computer and everything's mm. possible. But it, on the other hand, it is good to use it as a tool. It's brilliant because you can just try anything out. Yeah. And redo it, and yeah, it is amazing. Yeah, it's. And I'd like to do that more. And then you just get into the sort of right now. I need a studio set up. Now I need, and it's mm -hmm. just like. Money, it's money, never money. Ending. <laughs> yeah, there's always something else. Yeah. And so I do I like I do like the fact that I'm restricted to my guitar at mm -hmm. home. I just I've got guitars everywhere and I just pick them up and each one and if it's if it starts there, you know that it's gonna it could end in something more. But yeah, so I when I said earlier it's interesting, I really genuinely believe to be produced you have to let someone produce mm -hmm. you. You can't just go into a studio session with someone who's made great records and expect them to produce great things unless you embrace it. And also, only on this album, I've worked with the same producer, Cam, for both my records and my EPs before that, actually. And this was the first time I appreciated fully he's as creatively involved in this as I am. And he, yeah. him putting his name on this album is as important as me releasing it because he's saying, I want to be a part of this thing. Yeah. And it, they're only doing things because they believe it's going to help the, the album or the yeah. track. They, you know, there's no... If at any point, I think, you're in a studio with a producer that you thought had an ulterior motive, that would be when it's wrong. 
Welcome, one and all, to the halftime break, the interval. Um, now, this is the point in the podcast where I take the opportunity to let you guys know what I am up to. Um, I believe by the time this episode goes out, it will be December. Ah, uh-huh, December, which means Christmas is around the corner, which means in my world, we are doing an awful lot of kind of Christmas promotion. So that's TV and radio performances, um, promoting a song of mine called Hold My Girl. Um, which I'm loving promoting, it's unlike any other song I've ever promoted before because in the past my singles have all been quite upbeat Um, and this is, well, the closest thing to a ballad I've ever released Uh, which is just different, it's a different experience kind of presenting a slower song Um, but it's a song that is very close to my heart and a song that I love so if you haven't heard it Uh, go and check it out, that is Hold My Girl. And that song is of course off my second album, which is an album called Staying at Tomorrow's. Um, Named Staying at Tomorrow's because I went over and spent a month in Barcelona. I lived in Barcelona for a month and my host was a girl called Tamara and the whole point of the trip was for me to get my ideas together. So I spent a month to myself wandering around the city writing down anything that came to mind and a lot of the songs you hear on that album came from that trip. Um, Yeah, so I hope you enjoy that. Uh, If, if by any chance you feel as if you haven't got quite enough George Ezra in your life then head over to georgeezra.com where you will find all sorts of good stuff. You will find my journal that you can sign up to, whereby I sit down once a week and write down a journal entry of everything that we're up to, and that will land in your inbox if you sign up once a week. Um, There's also the merchandise stall, there's music, of course, and there's videos and all of that good stuff. Um, Now, I think this might be a good time to hear a word from our sponsors. Thank you very much for hearing me out. Thank you very much for meeting me here each week. Um, I feel as if that's a healthy sized interval. So without further ado, let's jump back into the conversation with Laurie Vincent. We'd had a bit of a unfortunate ending to our album that it ended in a dispute about a percentage of one of the tracks being written in the studio that the producer and you know it completely left sour taste in our mouth. Is that on the first album? Yeah it was on a song called Feed the Manta Ray and the dispute the worst bit was the disputed part of the song I wasn't in the room and so I felt even more sort of backstabbed. Yeah, yeah. You sort of trust someone and then but you know we I had him round he was sat we were sat right here where we are now just after we'd recorded the second album and I just, before the second album came out, I just knew it wasn't, I knew in my heart that we hadn't done what I wanted to do, but we what, did. What, on the second album? Yeah. Really? Yeah. I love that album. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, I think it's brilliant. It's... That's with Mike D, right? Yeah, but I think, I thought we were going to do on our second album what we've actually done on our third. Okay. And now in hindsight, I'm really glad we did our second album because we stepped out into an unknown. We put everything we wanted to. We like we had a self-indulgent. But the sort thing of, you say that, but it still only it feels as if you did it. Like it feels like there's a step on in in sonically. There's more instruments. There's drum machines and there's synths and bits on the second yeah. album. But it doesn't feel as if you've gone overboard. I don't think it feels like you've gone, like, we can do anything. Yeah. I think it's it sounds in keeping. I think what we did well on the second album 
was the songs that don't sound like slaves. I think the songs that sound like slaves weren't very good. Yeah. I think there are songs like Spit It Out, Hypnotize, Rich Man that were just slapped out and we didn't go into depth on them. What's the one that's... Oh, Lies. Yeah, I like that one a lot. That is like, that's the standout on the album And even Isaac's voice on that, it's something new. That's the step, that song was like almost the stepping stones between the albums. Okay, brilliant. Yeah, and we did some really fun stuff. Like we did that song with Baxter Jury, who's a personal hero. But I think the second album... Yeah, I don't hate the second album. One, I, one thing I would say, so you did that in LA. Yeah, which didn't suit us either. <laughs> did you, do you feel that way? Yeah, Because I remember seeing pictures of you in LA when you were recording it and being like, oh, fuck, that's like a big jump. Yeah. So I know it's only a bloody location. Once you've flown there, you're there. You might as yeah. well be anywhere. But it does... I think those things do make a difference. Yeah. How, how did that conversation come about? Was that because of Mike D? Yeah, I think it, it sort of ended up that... the re- It wasn't a very like smooth process of getting the time booked in. We were like on a tour. Is it going to happen? Is it not going to happen? Is his schedule free? Isn't it free? Not fully committed to making the record, but wanted to do some demos. And it was kind of like... I remember being in Santa Monica, doing pre-production at his house, saying on the phone saying we just need to do this and our manager going okay I'll sort it out changing our flights getting an Airbnb Mike D booking a studio it was like and that already isn't a healthy atmosphere to go into a record but that's like my mindset's always been let's just fucking do this Mm. Um, funnily enough we had a similar thing with this album where the studio we were planning to record it in told us a week before or a month before that there was an 8pm noise curfew after it had been booked we lost, we'd like had an Airbnb booked out for a month. We had the studio booked. And then they were like, oh yeah, just so you know, it's like no loud noises after 8 p.m. And you're like, right. <laughs> That's just half our working time reduced. Um, yeah, so the Mike D record was great. Mike's definitely, I'd say he's a personal friend now. What he brought to the experience is like priceless. But again, I don't know if it was in a production or in a producing sense seeing him work and seeing his sort of ability for sounds and his confidence but still he tried to he took us into pre-production and he cut up songs and he said try and do and he did bits of it but we still didn't fully we would fight him a lot and we wouldn't just try things and that was our own naivety and um it sounds, I like to make bold statements about small, maybe it's not a small thing to me though, but I genuinely believe David Bowie's death had a huge influence on this album because you're a product of your surroundings and David Bowie dying, um, 2016, wasn't it? So just after our album had come out, the, the, the you can't go anywhere without being seeing him now. And it, it's amazing, the documentaries about him. Even just walking to your place today, I saw a, like life-size graffiti of David Bowie and so you think I'm going to actually get to know more about this guy and what he was and you start realising his genius and then you then there there's a couple of pivotal things for me firstly track listings there was a, a lot of I try not to but I read every single review we get and I'm it's like I can't I can't not do it yeah. so irritating Emma saw me in the kitchen doing it today and she was like stop it she was like look at me I was like I'm going to read it I'm going to I'm I, I sound like someone who's like a drug addict I'm like nope I'm going to do it <laughs> 
Yeah. <laughs> um, it was a good one, so I was happy. <laughs> okay, so it could, today could have gone differently yeah. had it been a bad review. I get over it pretty quick, okay. I think. In, but then, like, like in the long run, it affects me. But a lot of the things were about our track listing on the album, and it really bugged me because we we love hip hop, so we decided on Take Control to put the skits as tracks rather than just embedded in the song. So that obviously added four songs to the track listing and everyone was saying oh it's a 17 track album in reality it wasn't it's, comedy, it's not it's just you yeah um david bowie like wasn't the last album only like six songs or something and then you look at most of his albums and they don't ever really go above 10 tracks and then i was like why does he do that and then it, you start listening to them and they're like these short sharp amazing pieces of music and you're like right if that's good enough for bowie and then the second element of Bowie is producers. There's someone who let him be produced and understood the quality that brings, which leads to Nile Rodgers. A, a Nile Rodgers David Bowie record or a Tony Visconti David Bowie record are two separate entities, whether he's trying to be more soul and R&B at that time or more rock or more jazz. And then that's, if when you understand that, that's when you get the best out of a production. It's also that... that yeah, it's exactly that. And and it's also wearing your intentions on your sleeve. So, you know, when Nile Rogers talks about his involvement with Bowie, he's like, Bowie wanted a hit. Bowie came to me wanting a pop hit. You know, he came to the right man, mm. you know? And I don't... Especially right now, we're getting asked a lot, like, are you... Is it important to be politically motivated, is it? And I'm... Yeah, it definitely is. And what I will say is this album is... There are... We still touch upon politics and stuff but in honesty it's, dri it's driven me insane the past few years there are no future headliners and I'm like well, in my head will be future headliners and speaking about blind ambition it can be ugly in the UK it's not a but ever since I just want to headline Reading and Leeds that's what I want to do and so that's my if you've got a goal you can go somewhere if you don't know what you want to do so for us I was said to Isaac I was like, we've got the Hunter. We don't need to write another Hunter. We've got Beauty Quest. We've got the heavy parts. I was like, what we need now, we need a song that makes people dance and we need a song that makes people just sing along with their arms in the air. And I, then Supersonic by Oasis, the documentary came out. And I'm sat in the cinema watching them at Nebworth. Hot hands up, I'm a blur man. Growing up, blur, 100%. You watch the Nebworth footage and you're like, holy shit, I want a bit of that. I want to write a song that does that. But it's so good hearing you say this because I, like, I remember hearing Dizzy Rascal talk about Bonkers and he was like, man, Boy in the Corner did so good, right, that my audiences doubled in size overnight and you need the song that fills that stage. And when you're being booked to play, you know, party, Ibiza Rocks, festivals, blah, 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 I needed Bonkers, you know? That's what yeah. those people wanted. So while some people didn't enjoy it, I needed to do that and I understood that so much it's kind of like nothing makes me happier when I'm on stage than playing Budapest Blame It On Me Paradise Shotgun they're the ones that yeah. go off they're the ones where hands are in the air there's not one person isn't singing along I love that yeah it's the and why wouldn't you love that as well who's who's actually like, who actually wants to stand on stage and play the song people don't know? And if you ask most artists, including well, ourselves included, the songs that don't get a good live reaction fall out of the set really quickly. Yeah, of course. So you, so why, I said to Isaac, basically, the, 
So we weren't wholeheartedly let's write sing-alongs. What I said was, I want nine singles. I want, I want to put out an album of singles. And honestly, I think we've got an album of eight out of nine, no, seven out of nine could be singles. One's just goes, artificial intelligence goes there and it's sludgy, it's not a single, and daddy's too short maybe. But to me, every other song on it, Lives They Wish They Had could have been a single off the first album. And so I was like, I'm not going to put this record out unless I feel that every single song is as strong as the last one. Whereas on the last album, my mentality was, I'm going to show you what I like. Because I do love those songs, but then it's not hit, hit, hit. Or yeah, yeah, yeah. We don't have hits. I, but. We should just say, so we are sat together on the 15th of August, mm-hmm. and we are currently talking about Acts of Fear and Love, which is an album that is going to come out in two days' time. Two days. And, but I don't know. I, I don't know when this episode will go out, but the album will definitely be out by then. Yeah. Um, but it's exciting to be sat here so close to the release of it. It is. It's such a weird feeling, and you don't think. It's almost like Christmas. I think it's probably more than Christmas is nowadays for me. It's yeah. that feeling of Christmas when you're a kid. And it's scary though. I don't know if you feel the same, but a lot of people listen to the run up to an album, and then the album don't listen to it or something my thing is the more I hear about an album the less likely I am to listen to it when it's released yeah so like when Frank Ocean dropped Blonde and I know it's only because my Twitter feed is an echo chamber but I couldn't move for it and I just went oh fuck that yeah I'm never going to enjoy it as much as you're saying you're enjoying it so what's the point but then I came to it year or so later and then I listen to it do you know what I mean yeah exactly I don't know if that's my own hang up I just get a bit like suffocated mm. um, that when you very kindly sent me links to the new album before getting here um, and I didn't realise this until you handed me a physical copy today but it played in a random order <laughs> but the three in a row were Daddy Photo Opportunity and Acts of Fear and Love mm. which all three to me sound like a new direction yeah for slaves and I think it's brilliant that you've done it um, and I think it will be really interesting to see them live and and how people you know take those songs on it's interesting as well because I when you're writing songs sometimes you don't realise some people give you feedback afterwards and you didn't even see it you're so focused on the so focused on the other music that songs like Daddy don't even... To me, I feel like Daddy's quite in a similar vein to um, some of the stuff on Take Control, but then I've had to have a more analytical look when I go back now and I realise how dark that album was, how depressing it was. Do you know the Whereas thing... Daddy's actually more of... It's got, it's got this, like... It feels like someone's hugging you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think the reason they stood out so much was because on my computer they played one after the other. Yeah. Those three songs. It'll be interesting to listen to it as you know you guys intended it to be listened to. Yeah, photo opportunity. Isaac likes to say he listened. He listened to it the other day on a hangover, and it made him cry. Oh, mate! And we—it's the first time that he, in my opinion, has opened up mm. in a lyrical sense. A lot of his lyrics are outward, and on this album, he's like "Acts Fear and Love" is a story, like it's a true story about one of his best friends that went to prison, basically, and. Um, the lyrics are just so raw and and then his delivery is so soft 
and we had a we had like a legendary A and R on our last record called Mike Smith. He like signed Blur. He signed the Arctic Monkeys publishing. He did like intimidating. He signed Robbie when when Take That split up. Like he went for Robbie, and that was the thing that drew us to him as well. Like wow, you signed Robbie Williams. I love Robbie. Mm. And um, he went to me once when we were recording the second album. He was like, "Do you think you'll ever get Isaac to sing?" And that shows the genius of that bloke because I was like, that's what I want to do. But it, you, you can't just go from like 100 miles an hour to zero. You have to be, there has to be a stepping stone. Yeah. And he also said after the release of our last record, he didn't say it to us, but he said to a manager, he was like, that was the best thing they could have ever done because we cemented the old fans. But you can't just go from, if you went first release to where we've gone now, straight away, you're going to lose a lot of people. Yeah, but, but even on this new album, there's songs like Bugs and things like that that, that, that people aren't going to be... That's, what's, that's what I can't wait for, because per, on purpose, the lives I wish they had is the first track on the album, and the singles are actually a lot more poppy than anything we've done before. Mm. And then people are going to put the record on expecting something else, and they're going to get classic slaves yeah. straight away. We thought about it a lot. Yeah, it's good to, though. I mean, something I wrote down before coming here was just it, it dawned on me just how busy you are as a person mm. it's as if you never stop because you can't i guess because it's like 2015 and 2016 you release albums which is a quick turnaround you've got yeah. to have written recorded released you have a kid in 2016 <laughs> which is really huge in 2017 you don't release an album but you're doing art exhibitions of all your own paintings yeah. and you tour that as well yeah. you did that in more than one location yeah. and then the year after that you're releasing another album while on top of that you have a clothing line yeah it's just like <laughs> you, you're like obviously somebody that it just can't stop in a good way you know it's yeah. like just why would you if you've got these creative energies put them somewhere do you have like an idea of what it is you want to do next or do you surprise yourself sometimes I get like concepts like little I know where I want to be and I can see the future like I can see like my dream of the future and I can see now but the in between's not clear and it's step by step I know like you, you I I know where I think I'll end up but it's just working out how I don't know the route mm -hmm. I've I love painting I love art and so I tattooed and that was my introduction I loved I didn't know how you could make because for me I was always brought up to be like you've got to have a fallback if you're going to do music the, the you've got to have something else that if it falls apart you've got to be able to make money I've just had this practical mm -hmm. sense drilled into me that even now that I'm comfortable I still don't rely on music I have to think especially I've got family I have to think what would I do because also the idea of I don't I love music so much that the idea of it it would cripple me if I had nothing that I liked to fall back on because I would feel so scared of losing it all the time. So before I touched an instrument, I've always been obsessed with drawing. I just loved drawing cartoons. I love painting. Just art class was always my favourite. And then that led to doing tattooing because that was a job version. And then when I, I there was a brief period where I almost became a proper tattooist and I, and I was starting the band and I was tattooing fans and stuff and it was just so stressful just incredibly like 
intense and you'd come I'd come home and I'd just be exhausted like the physicality of taking all your tattoo equipment to a new place setting up for the day the pressure of tattooing someone the designing I just I just fell out of love with the and tattooing. so you were doing that on top of touring yeah I was coming back off tour Mate. and doing that and I, there was a brief period where I was trying to do it on tour and stuff whereas like I didn't take time out to perfect it and then do it I was trying to do it together and then I just it was Christmas when I first moved into my flat with my girlfriend so we'd released Are You Satisfied and I remember my mum saying what do you want for Christmas just like I was like are you still going to get me Christmas presents Um, and I just watched a documentary on Paul Simonon like when I say documentary like a five minute YouTube thing and he's a painter and I was like I loved painting with GCSE it was like I was always going to do art or music and I was like can you buy me an easel a canvas and some oil paints I'm going to get back into it and that was it. And I was obsessed with this artist um, who was up and coming called Danny Fox, who's a brilliant painter. He's like, he's smashed it. He's massive now. Um, and then I just got really into like, I really, my Instagram's full of painters. Mm. It used to be full of tattooists. And I'm like, I, I unfollow anyone that puts inspirational quotes up. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one to live by. <laughs> and I just follow like painters and stuff and musicians. So, then I start painting, and then in typical me fashion, I have to do something with it. I can't just leave them in my living room. So then I start doing shows, and people like it. And then we move to Brighton, and then I get a studio in New Cross. Then we move to Brighton, and it all just starts to like snow snowball, and people like it, and people really. And so I've got this thing coming up where. Uh, it's not been announced or anything yet, but I'm going to be doing like a big thing in London next year with my painting. But now I've got this thing of when am I going to do the painting? So there's one of them in the bathroom actually above the toilet. I don't know if you saw it. It's like the brain with some legs. Yeah, 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 yeah. So that's one of my new ones. And there's this new series that I'm doing. But I'm constantly doing something creative. And I've realised now on this album, it's better when I'm making music to try and calm the art side in my head and focus on music i used to try and do it all at once but i am really starting to learn that you've got to give all of yourself to one thing at a time and you'll get more back you can try you can do both at once but i think each thing can suffer Mm. so right now i'm obsessed with music like i just like keep getting new guitars and writing (laughs) songs and do you have it where like when i'm writing the songs all I want to be doing is recording them. Mm-hmm. And then once I've been recording for a few, like for, I'm like, oh, I wish I was touring now. And then once I've been touring a while, I'm like, I wish I was writing new stuff. I'm like, I'm... My, my, I've said to someone, the dream scenario would be if you could split your week up and do two days gigging, two days studio, two days writing, mm-hmm. and then have a day off. That'd be brilliant. And you'd never get bored. I th- one thing I really want to do for this next album is actually record as I demo. Whereas in the past, I've like stockpiled 50 songs, then picked the strongest 15 or 20, recorded them to a standard, then picked the strongest 12 of them to be the album kind of thing. So the 50 songs, do you just remember them by like writing chord charts? And no, lyrics? no, we'll just do like... You'll do a rough demo, then you'll demo Real rough demo, demo just me and Joel together, who I write with. Then, and we'll like do it to a click so that it can, if, you know, it can go wherever. It, it, we can use it if we want to. Then say it's between say 30 and 50 songs they are not all at an equal standard 
Like, yeah. it's worth saying it's not like 50 Budapests. It's like. Yeah. <laughs> did um, you, did you, when you were at Budapest, did you have the smile moment where you're just smiling to yourself in your head? Me and Joel did. I remember driving back from Wales where we wrote it, and I remember us being excited about that one. But I'd never had a song on the radio at that point, really. Or, like, I didn't know, like, this, where is Shotgun this time around? I remember even the acoustic demo we did, it was a bit like, Fucking hell! We've got something, something in here. that, yeah, and, yeah. and it took us. It, it took about five or six different productions to get it to yeah. where it is now. But there was just something, and I wouldn't say I was cocksure because I don't think that's in my nature. But there was something in me that was going, if not this tune, then I don't know if what. you've got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's what it must be hard from your perspective coming back after Budapest. I've been. I've like felt really fortunate that we've had a very gradual build. Yeah. I don't think there's been a single moment where, to me, it's felt like... Yeah, and, and the other thing is that you can't not go with it when the when opportunities start arising. You have to run with it. Even Like the first time I did Live Lounge, I remember that we got offered it, say, the week before. I think someone had dropped out or something. And I said to my manager, I am, this is too early, man. Like, we shouldn't be doing this. Yeah. But then it's like, but you don't turn it down. No, no way. Do you know what I mean? So then there's this video of me at 19 years old shitting myself in the live lounge doing a One Republic song acoustic that was, you know, I murdered it. It was awful. <laughs> but you can't not do it. When certain doors open, you don't say... Oh no, you're right, mate. I'll call you back in a few. Give me six months and I'll be ready. You have to put on the brave face and do it. It's hard to pick a live lounge song because oh. there are parameters and stuff that you can't just pick anything. No. I've been really fortunate. The last few times I've done it, one of them it just had to be any song that had been nominated for a Brit ever. So that that's would, brilliant. That was good. Was that in like live lounge week? Yeah, 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 yeah. And then we've had little rules like that the whole time. It's just which has Ours been has good. always been like a playlist song, which makes it really hard because yeah. usually we're not the first people in, and then someone else has done the song you want. Has anyone covered your song? Surely. Yeah, yeah. It. So One Republic ended up doing yours back. Uh, yeah, which brilliant. is really sweet. <laughs> and then I think they ended up touring it. Really? Yeah. But to go back to what you were saying, I was in the car with my dad the other day, he came to one of these shows with me, and we were driving back home, and I just went, it's just hit me, none of us would ever have expected that we'd have a song bigger than Budapest, mm. and at the moment we do. And to it, me, is it? Yeah, Matt, like Budapest went in at number three, and Shotgun went to number one, which wow. I've never had, yeah. and like, it feels different, it feels yeah. like it's... Yeah, it feels bigger. I could be wrong. Maybe it's just because I'm in the throes of it at What's the moment. What's Budapest like when you play it in Budapest? Mental. Is it? Yeah, I'll Are have to show you a video. We did Zig It. Yeah, uh, yeah, I made a real big point early on, every time I perform it, to make sure everyone knows it had nothing to do with Budapest. So I think that kind of separated it a bit. Why doesn't it? Because it was more just the way I write lyrics. The word just fitted. It wasn't. Yeah, it's like a good image. Well, I I travel around Europe for the first album, and the story goes: Budapest was the only place I'd planned to visit that I didn't make it to. Ah. So, then I started to write this love song. Yeah, mate, it's amazing. Incredible. I love it. Yeah, it's just that you can't. What I've learned on this album is you cannot plan anything. You don't know what's going to happen. I mean, you're saying that it's been, you know gradual for you guys which it has but then your first album was still well, number 8 and top 10 yeah. and, you know and that's huge yeah it is it's meant, and then we had a number I, I actually I 
like predicted this weird thing that we're going to keep going up in increments of two. Yeah, because the second one went to number six. Yeah, so I'm I'm expecting number four this time because nice. we've got the Greatest Showman, Mamma Mia, and Demi Lovato, I think, to, or Ariana Grande, right. and Ariana Grande to contend with. Right, and it's just the nature of pop music. So like, you look at your followers, and you're like half. If even a quarter of you that say you follow us bought our record, we'd have number ones. Mm -hmm. But it's just people don't buy records anymore. So it's it's actually being a big band's got nothing to do with selling no. things now. It's like especially we're in this as as a band as well. We we were talking about it yesterday. We have to keep reminding ourselves we're not a pop act because mm. we get we do these festivals and we've done big weekend and. Will be mentioned or will be on the bill in the same lineup. Like we played with Dua Lipa like three times this summer, but you forget you're not. We're a punk. We are essentially a heavy rock band, and there are people that are like, "How is this?" I'm like, "How is this getting played on the radio?" And then in my other high head, it's like, "Why aren't we?" A yeah, <laughs> yeah, I see what you're saying, but I, I'm always quick to remind people that actually Radio One isn't. I'm going to say something and then take you back. It's not mainstream radio, right? Now, take it back, it is mainstream radio, but there's Capital, there's Kiss, there's, they're the big you know, ones. they're the yeah. real pop stations. Radio One do such an amazing job of, like, experimenting with new bands. The whole fact that, like, I, I don't know what the figure is, but there's BBC introducing acts being played on Radio One every week without fail, which yeah. is amazing. There's people like Annie Mack that are plucking people out and going with it and playing songs that are new... You know, even in style for people, and it means that it's it's not one genre and it's no. not one thing. And I think sometimes it's easy to think it is. Yeah. But then when you actually look at you know what Hugh Stevens played in one show, or or you know, I I think it's brilliant. Yeah, it is. Without introducing, we really wouldn't be. We wouldn't have got where we got as quickly. Like Radio One is the real. They champion new music. But not only did they champion you, it's obvious from the outside that they've stuck with you as well. They've yeah. done those follow-up documentaries, you know, they, and they did that. They came on tour with you, I think, yeah. at one point. And, and you've been at the big weekend. It's, it's, it's amazing. Yeah, and they do, they're bringing new bands through slowly, like a band that supported us on Take Control's first tour and now on the playlist at Radio 1, and you're just like, that's brilliant, called Shame. And they're another band that you're like, how are they getting on the playlist? It's, it's great. And like our new single went on the playlist again yesterday. So we've we've been on, we've had three albums with songs on the playlist. And this is, I think we didn't, we only got one song on last time, but we've got two this time. And without Radio 1, we'd struggle. Yeah. They're really, and there really isn't another station that helps sort of a, such a broad range of music, like yeah. you're saying. And even to even to have a hit to get onto all those other stations, I don't even know how people do it. It's just another. That's another world. That's like well, to go back to the Radio One thing. I think part of the reason it works so well, you being on there, is the tempo, the upbeatness mm. of what you do. Because obviously, leading up to this interview, I've been listening to non-stop slaves. And in the gym, <laughs> it's wicked. It's so good. I, I listen to, because I can't listen to my own music, but I've started going to the gym and I listen to idols when I'm in the gym. Because like, on a treadmill, I need something. My, my manager listens to your podcast when he's running, and I not to take anything away from your podcast, but I don't know how you can listen to people talk and run at the same time. Do you know what I find? Sometimes I have to listen to podcasts when I'm running... 
instead of music because if it's music I normally switch to music for the last 10 minutes right to give me that like boost but otherwise I try I and run to run the tempo 10 minutes yeah, yeah. <laughs> do you know what you should get is you know the couch to 5k thing no mate I'm, I'll send you a link it's this app and it takes you out for a half hour run on your first day, but you only actually, you'll run for two minutes, then walk for two minutes, run for two, so that's your day one, but yeah. it means you're out of the house for half an hour. And then within something like 40 days, you're running 5K, and mm. it works for everyone. Really? And it's beautiful, because by the end, you're like, you get addicted, you're going, I can't wait to get out again. Yeah, it's wicked. How do you run? Do you get up in the morning, or do you do evening, or do you just uh, mix it up? I, I used to be like, if I don't do it in the morning, then I won't do it. And then when I was recording the album, I was like, oh, it's actually really nice going after yeah. the, the day. Yeah, I, I actually have finally got, I've only, I've done like the treadmill like four or five times in the gym. It was always the thing I avoided. And I actually really, when you push yourself through and you do like that, I do, I like started doing 15 minutes instead of 10. Yeah. And when you finish that 15 and you just get off and you're just like, and then the endorphins for the rest of the day are huge. Yeah. Just like exercise is so good for the... And you give a little and then you get more energy. Yeah, and then our, our live show is just, benefited again yeah. and not drinking our live show has just gone up a level again it's just like when I didn't think our live show could get more ridiculous and more energetic it's got more ridiculous yeah, and yeah. energetic do you can you see a day ever when there's a third musician on stage with slaves yeah that's such a better way of putting it because people say could you ever imagine having another band member no. no no one will ever join our band it's just it won't be like that but we will one day branch out but I'm not sure if it will be slaves I'm not sure I view I really view like me and Isaac as a duo of writers mm -hmm. like you and your friend and whether it's like us producing other people or us I've, I think we both have always said from day one this is the first project and I think the you know like the way Damon Albarn and Gorillaz mm -hmm. like, or something like that could be next mm -hmm. I'd, Isaac physically won't be able to do what he's doing forever. He already is like getting a hunch back. He's had two operations on his shoulders. He's, he just can't, you can't sustain that, I don't think. The, and I think if he starts, he, he can't sustain it in the way he's doing it and he doesn't want to adapt it because he wants to do it as fully as possible. Mm -hmm. He wants to drum in his style. But you know, I mean, he could, you could probably pull it off, but there comes a point where also you look a bit dodgy as like a, maybe a 50 or a 60 year old bloke <laughs> doing it but we'll we'll keep adapting through our music i think if you grow old graciously and you kind of accept that i Things think when, when, yeah i think where it gets messy is when my sister always said this like people look worst when they like try and dress the way they did in their prime mm. so you see like mums in their like 50s but they're dressing as they did in the 80s and it's like no you need to stop now like those days are over yeah. you know it's that kind of thing with bands as well. It's like, as long as you... Like I saw Paul Simon the other week. He's just wearing a T-shirt and some jeans. He looks the bollocks, you know. He's still talented, but he's not yeah. trying to, like... No, I agree with you with that. You definitely have to age gracefully. Yeah. My mum always used to say, hey, um, mutton dressed like lamb. <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> so, d d just to kind of... You've got the album on the horizon two days in fact and you're talking about you personally always needing something going on do you know what's round the corner so say once this album's been toured and you know that comes to an end naturally do you know what you'll want to do will you want to move on to a slaves record again or, or is it that thing again you know the destination you just don't know in which way you're going to get there so 
I sort of see the corner is like Christmas. At the moment, the album first cycle of the campaign, the first bit will be finished in December. We will have done USA, Europe, only a bit of USA, I have to say, like a couple of dates, an extensive European tour, more than we've ever done, and the UK. And then that'll take up to Christmas where I'm gonna like have a little holiday and take some time off. Then that's when it gets a bit more open-ended and there might I might do some, I'm gonna do some art stuff but for me there's going to be another run of festivals we'll definitely I want to do this we've never I I feel like you kind of traditionally two years on an album is like quite short that's what people did and I feel like we've always only ever done one year like the last album we did one year and then we did a Kasabian tour which to us we were still in campaign mode kind we weren't in campaign mode but we were touring that album but people didn't realise we were out because we were on a support tour and not a headline tour. But yeah, for me, this we won't have wrapped this album up properly. There is other stuff under the... There is like... We didn't put everything we recorded on the album. There is... There's like a song that's arguably better than anything on the album that didn't make the album because it just didn't fit in with the album. So we're going to get back in the studio. Just... We're just going to keep, I want to keep making music. I want to, whether that's for myself, whether that's with Isaac, I really want to just get in a room and write more. I'm, I feel, I feel so happy with where we left off that, that I feel like I know more about how I want to write music. So I'm keen to do it again. Girl Fight Records, Ladybird. We just produced a new song for them that's coming out literally like next week, I think. So it will be out by the time you listen to this. Yeah, um, one tour at a time. I'm just hoping. I really want to get to Australia. We've just never been to Australia, and it's not? driving me mental. Got, I bet you've got fans over there. Got fans over there. Just the stars haven't aligned yet. I just want to make sure I haven't checked, like, forgotten anything. Oh, we should say that you're headlining Alexandra Palace. Oh yeah, <laughs> that's sick. Yeah, it is. It always feels though, like you know, you book the room and stuff, and like I'll be happy when most of the tickets are gone. We had a, it's selling really well already, but it's pretty daunting. Big old room. Yeah, mate, you'll smash it. Man, I can't wait. We that's where we thrive. It's the biggest venue you can do that's just standing, mm-hmm. and we don't really sell seated tickets, so we made a mistake. I'd always wanted to play Shepherd's Bush Empire, but we put two in on our last tour, and we didn't fully sell them out because no one wants to. Who wants to sit four tiers up to watch us? <laughs> Our promoter said he's never had a band that has such fierce standing fans. Like people would buy, rather pay like ten times the amount on a tout to stand and sit. So yeah. like on our last tour, every venue was sold out apart from the back row of seats. But there were people buying tickets off touts to stand. So it's interesting. So Ali Paddy's like our perfect venue. That's going to be amazing. Do you know when that is? It is, it's in November, at the end of November, it's nice. twenty. It's around the 24th. I've managed to see you live twice before. I oh, have you? Yeah, I came to you at Latitude. Oh, which one? First or, was it the 10th? I would say it was, yeah, it was the 10th. Yeah, that was a great gig that was. Louis Threw was there. Really? Yeah. Oh. Yeah, I know, watching us. Yeah. Amazing. I think we should wrap it up. Yeah. <laughs> I think so, because we've got so much good stuff. We've spoken for an hour and 42 minutes. Oh, wow. <laughs> Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you it's for having me. It's been a pleasure. Me. It's been an honour. And good luck with the album. 
I feel I like can't we should wait shake, to hands. Out. shake hands. Cheers, mate. <laughs> <laughs>Guys, it's the end of the episode. Um, thank you so much to Laurie if you're listening and to your team for helping put this together. Um, I, yeah, it has been, it was one of my favourite episodes to record to date. I just, I loved it. And uh, yeah, I hope we get to do it again sometime. And um, congratulations on all the success around the album. It's just amazing to see. So well done and thank you very much. Um, of course, thank you to Warren Borg who helps edit these episodes together thank you warren a big thank you to Oshin griffin who does all of the graphics that we see online on the world wide web that help promote the podcast um, thank you Oshin, and a big thank you to josh sanger and the closer artist team for helping me put everything together um, but not least absolutely not least a huge thank you to all of you that meet me here each week and uh, listen to the episodes i hope you're enjoying them um, if you enjoyed this one, why not go back and listen to previous episodes? Um, the first series is all there for you to enjoy, and of course, the uh, episodes from this series that have already been released. Um, yeah, I hope you are well, I hope you are happy, I hope you're having a lovely time wherever you are, and uh, hopefully, see you soon. Thank you, goodbye.